What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylai. So here I am with Paul, the sports wizard. We're going to talk about BC football and their win last week on Holy Cross. We're going to preview their game tomorrow against Florida State. Big game, the Red Bandana game for Boston College. And then at the end, we'll give our thoughts on the Red Sox firing Chief Baseball Officer High and Bloom. So we'll start off with the introduction. How are we doing, Paul? Good, Joe. It's good to be on with you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Much appreciated you taking the time to come on. Always a pleasure, as you know. So we'll start off with the BC win last week of a Holy Cross. Closer game than it should have been. At the end of the day, BC did struggle week one against Northern Illinois. So we thought it'd probably be a closer game against Holy Cross yet again. Luckily, though, BC did get the win. Eked out a win, but at the end of the day, a win's a win. A win's a win for this football team, who definitely has their uh, struggles thus far this year. The defense had, had a lot of trouble containing the quarterback, I thought. Yes, Luca. He did run the ball very well against BC's defense. Matthew Sluka, the quarterback for Holy Cross. I think he was the biggest problem and the biggest weapon Holy Cross had. So if BC struggled, struggled with Sluka last week, I can't imagine what Jordan Travis is going to do uh, tomorrow with the Heights. That's the thing. BC's defense did get their first sack of the season last week. Sheeta Salah, our boy, had a big sack for BC, which ends up being the first sack of the season. Salah's first sack, obviously, as well. One thing for BC is that they never trilled in this game. Even though there was momentum swings and Holy Cross did have a favorable swing multiple times, BC never trailed in this game. It was close for all 60 minutes. BC gets the win. There was a two-and-a-half-hour weather delay with lightning striking in the area and right over Alumni Stadium. So we end up leaving the game early at 3 o'clock. There's still two minutes to go in the game. Holy Cross has the ball down by three points. 31-28, two minutes to go. Holy Cross has the ball with a chance to go down the field and try to win the game. Two-and-a-half-hour delay. And even with that two-and-a-half-hour delay, Holy Cross's fans all stayed. It seemed like all the BC fans left, considering we had to get you know, home, obviously. We didn't, weren't going to stay at the game in the rain delay, but or lightning delay, I should say. But Holy Cross fans stayed. And so there's all the momentum in their favor with the ball. Two minutes to go, and only the Holy Cross fans in the stadium, which they were loud even during the game when all the BC fans were there. BC ends up finding a way to win, but it's obviously a tough game, considering you probably should beat Holy Cross by more than that. Absolutely, but remember, Holy Cross was undefeated last year and lost ultimately to the uh the national champion in the FCS, South Dakota State. So um, I'll take a win over anybody right now. Uh, I got a lot of respect for Holy Cross's coach, uh, Chesney. He's very good. He's got that team playing up to their capability, and that's like the most important job. They had some athletes, um, but I, uh, you know, BC had to wear them down a little. Um, and it, it was a struggle, but again, you'll have to take any win right now. That's the difference right there. You'll take a win at the end of the day, but. BC's run defense has to be better. Jordan uh, Fuller was the running back for Holy Cross. He tore up BC. 13 carries, 109 yards, two touchdowns. And then Sluka ran the ball very well on the ground as well. A quarterback that has mobility, similar to Jordan Travis. Travis isn't as elusive or isn't as quick as Sluka, but he can move himself in the pocket. I think Sluka doesn't have as good of an arm that Jordan Travis does, so Travis can beat you more in the air than Sluka can. But Sluka did find a way to move the ball down the field consistently against BC. And there was one point in the game that I want to mention. BC was up 24-14 at half. And then in the fourth quarter, they were up 31-21 with 14-55 to go. So it looks pretty good. You're up 10 with 14-55 to go. Tommy Castellanos has a touchdown pass to tight end Jeremiah Franklin, giving BC that lead by 10 points with 14-55 to go. So things are looking good. Who I think also could be a big play for BC's offense, Franklin. He only had one catch last week. It was a touchdown. But I think they could get him more involved over the next few weeks. But then here's the thing. BC gets that score, 10-point game with 14.55 to go. Holy Cross finds a way to make it a game yet again, as always, on a 15-yard run from Jordan Fuller, the running back for Holy Cross. Seven minutes to go. It's a three-point game. BC ends up eking out a win. But that's the problem. BC kept it close this entire game. And even though, like you said, Holy Cross is a very good team, one of the best FCS programs last year, 
BC talent-wise should beat them by more than three points. But considering BC struggled in the first week of the season against Northern Illinois, you knew it was going to be a close game against Holy Cross. What's one positive, though, you saw in this game? I thought, even though the defense did give up a lot of, you know, uh, uh, runs, obviously, there on the ground by Jordan Fuller and then Matthew Sluka, they found a way to pull things together and get the win. Two minutes to go. After the two-and-a-half-hour delay, the defense is on the field. The game is in their hands to get BC the win. And lo and behold, BC forces a fumble. Matthew Suga ended up fumbling. He was hit by defensive back John Pupil for Boston College and is recovered by Vinny DePalma for the win. The defense obviously ends up having a big drive to close the game. But if BC were to lost that game, it would have been devastating. So I'm going to say, even though the defense struggled overall the whole game, my biggest positive is that they were able to go onto the field and find a way to win that game. What's one other positive you had? It could be the same one. It could be the running back, Robichaud, who looked pretty good. I got a couple of things that I noticed. Uh, of course, we were at the game. Yeah, Castellanos definitely threw the deep ball a lot better, better from week yeah. one than week two. Um, he, he had a better touch in his passes, so that that was a big improvement I noticed. And of course, the kid Robichaud, what, what the transfer portal guy from, from Western uh, Kentucky, Western Kentucky, definitely a ball carrier. He runs hard every play. Uh, he he had a huge chunk, couple of chunk runs. Nineteen carries, ninety-four yards, and a touchdown on the ground. And then led BC, obviously, in rushing. Uh, but Thomas Castellanos, like you said, threw the deep ball better. He was 17-23 passing, 201 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Then on the ground, 16 carries for 69 yards with a long of 18. So he was very effective with the ball in his hands on the ground as well. Uh, so obviously that's one big note, like you said. Robichaud and then obviously uh, Thomas Castellanos. But yeah. Thomas Castellanos looked better than he did against the Northern Illinois Castellanos. No, he didn't throw any picks. And again, he was much more accurate than he was in week one. And I agree with you on the on, on the defense. Um, you know, they might have let up too many points than we thought they would, but they pressured the kid, uh, Sluka, all day, the quarterback. So I was I was very pleased with that. And you got to make plays like create the turnovers like um, the defense did at the end of the game to, to seal it. So uh, I was very pleased with that play. So Sluka ends up finishing the game 19 carries, 135 yards, and two touchdowns. Very effective with the ball in his hands. That was obviously a big difference maker in the game. But if you look at his stat line passing, 10 of 15 for 130 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. He didn't really kill you in the air. It was more in the run game. BC did pressure him. Even though they, were only got, they only got one sack, they were able to generate some pressure on him yes, and hit him. Yes, they did. So that's going to be a big difference maker in this game. Can BC find a way to get to Florida State's quarterback, Jordan Travis? That's going to be a big difference maker. But one other positive I want to mention for that BC team that game is that even though it was a three-point game, there was one note we listened to the radio broadcast on the way home, and they made a, made a point. There's two minutes to go in the game. BC didn't look really great all day. It was a close game. Even though they put together some good drives on offense, the defense had a couple good drives. But the fate of the game depended on that last drive by the defense, and they found a way to come out and get a big win and get a big stop. That's a big difference maker. But Sluka ran the ball very effectively out of the gate with two minutes to go. After the delay, he has a 35-yard run, which... Would have been probably a 50- or 60-yard run if he didn't step out of bounds. Would have been a much larger gain. And then on first and 10 of BC's 28 with one minute and 22 seconds to go, Sluka fumbled. BC gets the win. One thing that I was surprised with is the turnout for Holy Cross. I mean, their fans filled the stadium, Alumni Stadium. They allowed the whole game. They had a lot to say about Boston College. Just like Holy Cross's players had a lot to say about BC as well. But it felt good getting a win, even though it wasn't BC's best day on offense or defense. It's always good to go home with a win, even if it's a close game. You'd rather win ugly than lose an ugly game. Absolutely. I'd rather win any time looking ugly than play a great game and lose. So the defense came up big when they had to. Holy Cross scores, either ties it or goes ahead. We start 0-2, it would have been devastating around here. So it was a huge step by the defense. 
You got to be opportunistic. You got to create turnovers. And that's what they obviously did on that last drive of the game, forced a turnover and got the win. There was one thing, though, during that game that was interesting was if BC were to lose that game, is Jeff Halfley on the hot seat? Does he get fired potentially? I don't think he would have been fired after being 0 2, but it definitely wouldn't have been the best start of the season. I still think BC needs to make a bowl game for him to be sure he keeps his job at the end of this year. But if BC went 0 2, there'd be a lot of questions running around Boston College whether or not Halfley would be, still be the coach within the next couple of weeks. If you start at 0 2 and then lose to Florida State, let's say in an ugly game tomorrow, if BC were to lose ugly, 0 3, there's going to be rumblings about him losing his job. But luckily, he found a way to win. But would you be worried? For Jeff Halfley, BC lost that game last week? Absolutely. I, I think BC likes him, but you start out 0-2, you're probably going to lose tomorrow 0-3. You know, that, that prediction before the season of winning seven or eight games looks would look impossible if you started out 0-3 tomorrow So uh, without beating Holy Cross last week. So I think they want to give Halfley every chance they can to turn this around. Um, and last week was the first step towards that. One of the players I want to mention was Cam Arnold, which I know now we're going back into the game. He shined for BC's defense. Eight tackles, a forced fumble. He's the anchor of the linebackers. And the guy you pointed out in the preview of the season saying you thought he was going to take a step up this year and be a big leader for them on defense. And he showed that in the first couple of games. He's been very good for BC defensively. We'll see what he does in tomorrow's game. Holy Cross finished the game with 398 yards on offense. BC at 418. High-scoring game. Fun one to watch, but definitely nerve-wracking for BC. But lo and behold, at the end of the day, they get the win. That's most important. One and one now. On to week three now against Florida State. So let's preview that game really quick. The Red Bandana game tomorrow. Boston College playing at home versus Florida State. Florida State's the number three team in the country. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of rumblings about them coming into town, considering how good they've been over the course of the whole season. Now, two games in, they've been scoring points in both games. BC is going to have a lot of work to do tomorrow in that game. What do you see as the biggest need for BC in that game? Is it defense? Is it scoring on offense? I'd say defensively, it's going to be a big stop, big question whether or not they can stop Florida State's offense. Jordan Travis has been a Heisman candidate to start the season. 38 of 60 passing with 570 passing yards in two games, six passing touchdowns in a pick, also adding 58 yards in a touchdown on the ground. Trey Benson, their lead back, 21 carries, 126 yards in three touchdowns. And then one guy that I pointed out in a couple episodes already was Keon Coleman, a transfer wide receiver from Michigan State. 12 catches, 170 yards, four touchdowns. Four touchdowns in two games. That's going to be the biggest question. Can they stop Keon Coleman and can they stop Jordan Travis? What is your biggest question mark in the game? Is it defense? Is it offense? Probably a mix of both, I'd say, probably at the end of the day. I think BC, you know, I'm trying to look for an angle that they might have an advantage in or what kind of game plan they could use to, you know, just stay in the game. It really doesn't come that easy. Uh, Florida State's team speed, both sides of the ball, offense, defense, probably special teams as well. They have every advantage athletically. I think BC's defense will have, has to find a way somehow to slow Travis down. I think when they went down to Florida State, was that Tallahassee last year? Yeah. It was 14 to nothing before you could even uh, get your first snack in. So um, Yeah, before the, we even got the snacks out, you're right. <laughs> the defense got their work cut out for them. The offense is going to have to find a way to you know stay on the field, let the defense rest. Third down's the biggest play. you got to be able to convert. And then on defense, you gotta you got to get, get the defense off the field on third down. So I, I would think both sides of the ball is going to be a tough uh, job for, for Boston College. Maybe they can run the ball with Robichaux. Uh, Castellanos is definitely a good scrambler. Maybe he can, you know, put up some points, uh, some chunk plays with his legs just to keep, you know, the chains moving. Um, but it'll certainly be our biggest challenge of the year. One advantage we might have is Florida State will play Clemson next week, I think. They do, yep. Let's hope they're looking forward to that game and kind of overlook a little of what BC can do.
Definitely, that that would obviously be huge. Sometimes you look up your you know up your schedule and you look games ahead rather than looking at the games in front of you because you think it might be already a guaranteed win. Hopefully that happens tomorrow. BC is playing tomorrow in the Red Bandana game. Obviously a historic game for BC. It means a lot to the campus. It means a lot to the community. And so hopefully that gives some spark to BC in offense and defense. Hopefully they come out with some fire and they want to actually play hard, which they played hard in the first two games. But hopefully tomorrow gives them a different spark, though, and they're ready to go from the get-go. You're playing the number three team in the country, Red Bandana game. And there obviously is going to be storms, potentially. It's Hurricane Lee, so hopefully everybody out there stays safe. Uh, but there is Hurricane Lee coming in, so maybe it could be a rainy day, could be a windy day. We'll see what the situation is. We'll see if the game's postponed. You never know, obviously, with the weather this summer. It's been all rain and all over the place. But that's the thing here with BC. It's a red bandana game, and you said earlier, I think, before we recorded this episode, they're 4-5 and five in red bandana games, right? With a big win against USC in 2014. USC was the number nine team in the country coming into BC. They had a lot of talent on the team, Leonard Williams, Adoree Jackson, and BC found a way to win that game. BC found a way to win that game. We'll see if that's the case tomorrow. In that game, though, in 2014, our boy John Hillman had two touchdowns as a freshman for BC. That was huge. We'll see who the hero is tomorrow if BC were to win that game. But one thing BC has to do is stop Florida State's defensive line. Jared Verse... Last season, in his first year for Florida State, 12 games, 48 tackles, 17 tackles for loss, and nine sacks. This season already has half a sack and three tackles in two games. He's going to be a potential top 10 pick in the NFL draft in 2024. They have to find a way to stop him. And then one other player is Dennis Briggs Jr. He's the leading player in sacks with one and a half. He's going to be a big question mark whether or not BC can stop him. Who's another player that you think needs to stand up for BC? So you named Robichaud, Thomas Castellanos, maybe somebody on defense. Could it be Sheeta Salah? Could it be Cam Arnold? Could it be Cole Batson in the safety? Could it be Elijah Jones? I think it could be Elijah Jones, considering where BC is right now. And their run defense wasn't great last week, but considering Florida State's a better pass team, they'll probably throw the ball deep a lot. I think it's going to be in the secondary. I think that could be the biggest question mark of the game for BC. Can the secondary keep up enough to keep BC in the game? So Amari Jackson, and then obviously you have Elijah Jones. Can those two guys step up enough to help BC stay in that game? Jaywin Cheek as well. BC needs to find a way to stay in this game. Is there a player or a position that you think needs to step up that you haven't mentioned already? Well, I think the defensive play starts with the line. You can't give Travis all day to throw back there. Uh, who's that wide receiver for Florida State? Keon Coleman, Keon four touchdowns. Lighten it up. I've, I've seen highlights all year so far. So it will be a great test for the secondary. But the secondary can benefit if BC can you know, put pressure on Travis don't give them a lot of time. I think the secondary's played pretty well. Yeah, it's neither, been the run defense that's been the problem. Yeah, neither Holy Cross nor Northern Illinois uh, lit up the BC secondary for whatever reason. Uh, plus, we saw them in the uh, the you know the preseason. What we went we to the spring game. Yeah, yeah the, the secondary looked really good in the yeah, spring game. You're right. They're tackling good. Um, so I, hopefully, there's no you know yards after catch. So the secondary, um, I think, is capable of coming up with the you know with the decent game just to keep BC close and then. The biggest thing is is to try to stay close to the fourth quarter. I don't think I don't think Castellanos will will get sacked. He's so elusive. So hopefully we won't be any like third and longs. Hopefully only sacked once or twice. He'll get sacked a couple times probably, but hopefully not too much. The offensive line has looked better though. Yeah, Last week they looked pretty good against Holy Cross. Definitely improved, and he makes it easier for them because he can move so well. Quick feet, explosive, uh, you know, quickness off the acceleration. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if he can extend some plays, you know, anything can happen downfield. So if you look at the game, right, it's a red bandana game, Wells Crawler game, obviously a big thing for BC in the community. It means a lot to all of Boston College, players, coaches, former players, students, faculty. It means a lot to the whole community. So it's going to be a big game, and this is coming against one of the best teams in the country, a potential team that could win the college football playoff. So if you look at it, BC has a lot against them already, considering they have to play against the number three team in the country this week. But they have a lot going for them, playing 
in the red bandana game early in the season. Hopefully the rain holds off. We'll see how things work out there. Obviously, as I said, it's been a whirlwind of weather this, you know, whole summer really has been questionable every single day of whether or not it's going to rain or not. But if you want to give a prediction for this game score, what would you say right now? I'm going to go with the score being something like 34. I'm going to say 34, 17. I'm going to stay with that 34, 17, maybe 38, 21. If BC were to get another touchdown, I think BC stays within three touchdowns. I think they do. And even if they do get blown out at the end of the day, I don't think anybody's given them the chance you know, to win this game considering Florida State's been so good all year. But if you can stay in the game and stay close, that could be a building block for the rest of the season. And I don't know if you believe in more victories, but if you're playing one of the best teams in the country like Florida State, the number three team in the country, playing them tough, that's kind of a win on its own to some degree considering BC almost lost to Holy Cross last week and lost game one of the season to Northern Illinois. If you stay close with the number three team in the country, that would be huge. This is a team that blew out LSU in the game one of the season beating them 45-21, and they beat Southern Mississippi last week 66-13. So this team could score a lot of points. If BC stays within three touchdowns and holds them to under 40 points, that'd be a win. What would you say right now for score predictions? Hard to put a number on it, but we did score predictions before the season began for a good amount of games. What would you say right now? I'm going to go 38-21. Boston College lose by 17, but they stay in the game enough, maybe keep it to a touchdown and change, let's say 10 points in the second quarter or second half. In the fourth quarter, maybe Florida State pulls away and gets another score. That's my score, 38-17. That's where I'll go. I would think BC hopefully can keep you close till halftime. I think Florida State's athleticism will help them pull away. I do like your uh, your premise about them staying within the spread. I would predict something like 31-17. So you think BC can stay with the two touchdowns? I think they can stay with the two or three touchdowns. I'm in the middle. So I said 38-17, 38-21. I'll probably stay with the 38-21. I'll say they stay within 17. If you can hold Florida State to under 40 points, which they haven't held to under 40 points yet this whole season, that would be a win. They've only given up 24 points to 13 points in two games. 24 points to LSU, who, when the season began, they were the number five team in the country. Florida State was number eight. Now Florida State's the number three team in the country, which rankings don't always matter too much. At the end of the day, you're on the field with them. You're going up against them. You still have to always play the game. So you can't look at rankings and say, oh, they're number three team in the country. Let's just roll over. You still have to play the game always. So considering BC has a chance at home to be in the game with one of the best teams in the country, that would be a win on, on its own if they stay within two or three touchdowns against a team that could win the national championship. It should give BC momentum and a lot of confidence going in to the following week. So if they can stay close, I, I think uh, it'll give them a boost and hopefully can turn their season a little bit around, you know, more positive. I would agree with you on that one. So let's switch gears right now. And now we're going to talk about the Red Sox firing high and bloom. Chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox for three years and change, just about almost four seasons. And he ends up getting fired yesterday. Sam Kennedy at a press conference. Gave a lot of quotes talking about the situation. He said it is a results business at the end of the day. Obviously, they love Hyam Bloom. They say he's a great guy, knows the game very well. They want to see results. They want to compete for a championship. And they didn't see that the last couple seasons. What are your thoughts about this situation with Hyam Bloom? I'll give my thoughts in just a second. I'll probably even record a longer episode about it at some point. But I want to get your quick thoughts you know, in the next five minutes about Hyam Bloom. I, I th- first of all, I thought it was a great hire. Second of all, I thought his hands were kind of tied. Just, just as soon as he came in, I mean, he took over a team that won the World Series in 2018, came in in 2019, and his job was to get the team's salary under the the luxury rate, cut payroll, try to build the farm system, and have a consistent winner. Put all that together, it's rather impossible. I mean, the first step he he had to take, I think Sam Kennedy said that maybe a week ago on on, uh, national radio, was to dump salary. So, of course, trading Mookie Betts, was the biggest step he could take. Again, 
it backfired on the Red Sox since Mookie's probably going to be great, a generational talent. You hit or miss with that situation. I mean, from what I'm hearing now, uh, Xander Bogarts is yeah, definitely underachieving. So I, I think Bloom was told to reduce the payroll. I know he did. And I give him a lot of credit for like this this year's team. I think he had a home run. Like every player I think of. Was Jansen a home run? Yes. Chris Martin? Yes. Turner? DeVal? These guys had like um, uh, career years. Yeah. Turnaround seasons. They turned their careers around. Jansen was... The only miss was Kluber. And that was not even a big situation there. I mean, if you throw away bargain contracts to players, you're giving bargain contracts to Rich Hill and Michael Walker and... James Paxton, you're giving bargain deals to like, let's say, four or five pitches that were on the decline over the last few years. If you hit, on, let's say, three or four of those pitches, like the Red Sox hit a Michael Walker, James Paxton, even Rich Hill last year showed some uh, you know, great uh, signs that he still could be a major league pitcher and help out a rotation. Last year, if you're hitting, especially on Walker and Paxton, two contracts that were lesser, that you're just taking a low risk for a potential high reward and it works out, I mean, you can't really ask much more of Bloom. His job was to come in, lower the payroll, and try to compete with the lower payroll while also building the farm system, like you said. It's hard to be a team that's competing for for a championship while building a farm system, while also lowering the payroll to under the luxury tax. And that's a problem. That was the management decision. That's ownership saying to High and Bloom, hey, find a way to get us under the luxury tax. And at the end of the day, that's what High and Bloom did very well in Tampa Bay. He was there for 15 years working in that front office and was a major reason Tampa Bay is the team they are now building that farm system and building all those metrics to help you sign players for low money and find bargain contracts. But his job was to do that here in Boston. And a lot of people were not fans of High and Bloom's whole tenure here. And I was always teetering between supporting and not supporting him. And then probably about in June or July, I said, you know what? I've turned the corner on him. I looked at all those free agents he brought in this season, and he hit on just about everyone. Kenley Jansen, James Paxton, Justin Turner, Masataki Yoshida, Chris Martin, Adam Duvall. He hit on all of those. He did miss on Corey Kluber, like you said, but if you're giving him away a one-year bargain contract and it doesn't work out at the end of the day, it's worth the risk sometimes. And that's all you can ask for. High and Bloom's job was to lower the payroll, get below the luxury tax, and that's what he did in Tampa Bay 15 years. That's what he tried to do for the Red Sox in four years, and the, he did build a better farm system. The Red Sox farm system is better now than when he stepped in, in 20, at the end of you know, the 2019 season, really 2020 was his first season, but he stepped in at the end of the 20, 2019 season when the Red Sox fired Dave Dombrowski. But he was just doing his job at the end of the day. His job was to lower the budget and try to work and find bargain contracts. Doesn't really give out too much money. His biggest contract was to Raphael Devs on that extension, $300 million, but he did give that six-year, $120 million deal to Trevor Story. And that ends up being a deal that everyone loves to talk about. But it's not that big of a deal at the end of the day, considering Trevor Story, what he was in Colorado. Obviously, he's been inconsistent with the Red Sox between injuries and obviously cold stretches, but he's shown some signs of being still a great hitter at the plate. We'll see what happens there. But at the end of the day, if Trevor Story could stay healthy, that ends up being his biggest free agent signing, and a lot of people were in between liking that signing or not. If Trevor Story stays healthy, that ends up could potentially be a great signing for only $20 million a year. Does it look like it right now? No, because he's been injured a lot. But it could have been. And the Xander Bogot situation... You save so much money giving Bogots, not giving Bogots that 11-year, $280 million deal, gets a huge deal from the Padres. In three or four years from now, they're going to be mad if they don't win the World Series and they're still paying them money because in three or four years, Xander Bogots is not going to be the same player. So they're going to choose six or seven years of that deal. I don't blame Bloom for that situation. What I do blame him for in that deal, though, in that situation with Xander Bogots is this. If you knew he was going to walk in the offseason and you didn't think you were going to be able to sign him, which I don't know what was going on in the front office, if you thought you weren't going to be able to re-sign him, then trade him at the trade deadline. Trade J.D. Martinez at the trade deadline as well. That's what the Red Sox should have done at the trade deadline. That's not what they did in the 2022 trade deadline, but that's what they should have done. But you always look back and we always say, oh, we should have done this, we should have done that. At the time, 
Maybe Bloom actually believed in that team. Who knows? Who knows what he was thinking? But the way I feel is this. You can't always look back at moves and say, oh, we should have done this and oh, we should have done that because everybody could always look back and say, oh, I knew to do, I knew to do this and oh, I knew to do that. Bloom was doing his job working with the lower budget. At the end of the day, I was always teetering between supporting him and not supporting him. And then just about probably in June, I said, you know what? I think he's doing more good than not. And I was always kind of in the middle of, I was more tilting towards his side. But in June, I went fully on his side. And I said, you know what? I'm not completely in love with High and Bloom. I'm not a big hater of High and Bloom. I think he's doing some good things. I saw some progress with those free agent signings. And obviously now we're not going to see what some of his draft picks look like. He'll be gone by the time those guys get up, like Marcelo Meyer, Nick York, and Kyle Tail. But at the end of the day, I think the High and Bloom situation was not High and Bloom's fault. That's an ownership for lowering the budget and lowering the payroll. That's not High and Bloom. He was just doing his job and working with the lower budget. I'll let you say whatever you want about that. I, I agree. Uh, Boston is not a small market team. We can't operate the way like the Tampa Bay Rays do. Um, getting back to Story for a second, I think the Story signing was a great signing, but but that was a, a red flag to saying goodbye to Xander Bogats. Yeah, uh, And I don't think they wanted to trade Bogats because they just took a lot of negative press when they traded Betts. So if they traded like two of their homegrown super talents, it would have been much more pressure on the Red Sox, especially Henry from John Henry down. But you, you got to figure when they when they sign Story to six years, he's a shortstop. He's a he's, I don't know if he's gold glove or not, but our defense was a problem. And since Story's been back after the injury, he's making play after play at shortstop. So Much better shortstop than what they had with Kike Hernandez at shortstop. That was a big problem during the year. And I think the other big problem is, I don't want to blame it on injuries, but losing Hulk for a couple of months and Whitlock. For a month, uh, like Chris Sale for about two, two and a half Sale, months. We never came up with another front of the rotation starter. I mean, Winkowski... And Cutter Crawford, both, to me, overachieved. From the bullpen and the starting rotation. Yeah, Crawford is great in the rotation. And then Winkowski. The back of the bullpen. And Winkowski is an open and as a reliever. Yeah. Um, but they need a front of the rotation guy. Despite Bayo, who has electric stuff. They just right there. They do need to bring in a front of the rotation guy. Like a Garrett Cole or a Verlander Scherzer in their prime. But like Cole is now. Uh, like a McClanahan. Maybe Blake Snell, which he's having a great year at San Diego. He's a free agent now after the season's over. Maybe Blake Snell. Or Yamamoto from Japan. There's a chance with him. You need the stopper. You need a stopper because they stop losing streaks. The Red Sox were swept like four times at home this year. You know, four-game sweeps. Or went on Against the Yankees just now, streaks. too. Yeah. You can't let that happen. If you had a number one in there, they stop a losing streak and everything turns around. Yeah, you know, Bale was good for most of the year, but he tied down the stretch. Paxton was good for a, a long time, but he seemed to tie, and now he's out for the year. You need a front-of-the-rotation guy more than anything right now. That's obviously huge. And if you look at the Red Sox team and where they currently stand, obviously they're now out of the wild card race. Things didn't work out there. But they did have a shot. Still at the trade deadline, the Red Sox had a shot. And a lot of people wanted High and Bloom to buy at the trade deadline or sell. People wanted to pick one or the other. He didn't really do either. He didn't buy. He didn't sell. And here's the way I feel about it. At the time, I wouldn't have sold either. I cared more about the Red Sox not selling than I did about them buying at the deadline. Because I saw Whitlock coming back, Howe coming back, and Sale coming back, and Schreiber coming back, and Story coming back. And I said, with those five pieces coming back, I'm fine not buying at the deadline. I don't, definitely don't want to sell at the deadline. I don't want to sell no matter what at the deadline because I still believe in this Red Sox team. And here's the thing, and I want to make one more quick point before I let you go. With this Red Sox team, you see people losing interest 
The Red Sox had record lows in this series against the Yankees. Just with 30,000 sold tickets in two different games against the Yankees, which is the lowest in 25-plus years, if I remember right. So record low attendance at games. If you look at their day game yesterday and the first game of the doubleheader, there was like nobody in the bleachers. There was nobody there. But one thing I do know is this. The Red Sox are out of the mix now for the playoffs. Things are going downhill. High and Bloom's fired, obviously. So the Red Sox obviously know now they're building with a new GM for the future at some point. So that's another question mark on this team. There's a lot of uncertainty with this Red Sox team. And I know one thing. Me and you still watch games. We were still watching last night. We were still watching, you know, every game this past week, even though they were on a bad losing stretch the last couple of weeks. We've watched every game. And I'd say right now, my fandom for the Red Sox is more now than when I was a kid, when I was four or five years old. When I love the Red Sox more than anything, I am a bigger fan now than I was then. I bought into this team more because they were a likable team. A team that nobody gave respect to. Nobody really gave, you know, high and bloom any chance with this team. When he had Justin Turner being a free agent signing in the offseason, Mostak Yoshida was very criticized for the signing. The Red Sox gave him $90 million. People said the Red Sox overpaid by three times how much money they gave Mostak Yoshida. And, and he ends up being one of the best average hitters, you know, batting title, uh, you know, contenders. Ends up being one of the best hitters for average in the American League. But I like this Red Sox team because they were underdogs. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. When you're a Red Sox fan, you don't want to hear, oh, we're underdogs and we're, but, we're budget beasts and we're you know, signing guys and just finding guys under the radar for lower contracts. Because the Red Sox are used to spending big money. And even though spending big money has worked for the Red Sox in years past, when they won the World Series four times in, you know, in the last 20 years, they had top three, top five payrolls of baseball. So buying a lot does sometimes work. But if you look at the top three payrolls of baseball this year, the New York Mets... New York Yankees and San Diego Padres, three teams that didn't make the playoffs. So sometimes spending and going all in doesn't work at the same time, too. I know it's more attractive, especially when you're a Red Sox fan and a big market team, but Hyam Bloom's job was to lower the payroll. That's not on him. It's not Hyam Bloom that's giving away the money. It's the checkbooks coming from John Henry. So it's on John Henry there, not on Hyam Bloom. No, I, I agree 100%. I mean, in, uh, again, I, I just thought, of, what about Jaron Duran? I think the future is very bright. Cassis is coming on with some... Major power numbers. Um, Casas has been great. Tre- Trevor Story, you're going to still have in the infield next year. Yeah, he, he's been cold, but if you look at that team next year, you still have some pieces to build. Mastaki Yoshida, Justin Turner is a free agent. You Mastaki Yoshida, Jaron Duran, Trevor Story, Sedan Rafaela has hit a couple home runs now since being called up. You'll still have Connor Wong at catcher. Tristan Casas at first base. Rafael Devs at third base. Alex Rodugo potentially could be a guy that's gone. But there are a lot of building blocks for this team to build around for next season and for years to come. Like you said, Jaron Duran, Tristan Casas, two pieces that some other general managers might have given up on, considering it took them two and three years to really get themselves on track and look like they did this season. But Heimblum believed in them enough to keep them in the Red Sox lineup. Even though, and even though Jaron Duran didn't make the opening day lineup, he was called up a week or two in. He brought a spark to the team with the speed. Those are two guys that the Red Sox can build around for years to come. And Bloom kept them on the Major League roster. They could, he could have sent them down when they were struggling, but he believed in both of them. And so here's the thing with my high and bloom situation. I'm just going to end with this. He did some good things. He did some bad things. Obviously, the bad things, trading Mookie Betts, but I don't blame him for that. That's John Henry saying, lower us the payroll here. And he also added David Price to that deal, which you lower your return because you're dumping some money to the Dodgers there. You're lowering your payroll, dumping some money to the Dodgers. So you lower your return there. Real good point, Price. I forgot to mention that. So that's on management saying, trade high and, uh, high and bloom, trade Mookie Betts. There's no way, as a general manager for the first time, in your life, you say, oh, yeah, trading the best player on the team and a superstar and who's the NL MVP, you know, potential for this year. He's top two, very close now with Ronald Acuna Jr., but a perennial MVP candidate, there's no way you say, yeah, trading him is the best option for this team. That's on John Henry saying, hey, we got to figure out a way to lower payroll. He doesn't want to take the 10 years, 300 million, or whatever the Red Sox offered. Get rid of him. Find a way to get the best return. I think it could be similar to Dave Gettleman's situation with Odell Beckham Jr. I think it was management John Mara saying, hey, 
trade Odell. He's a distraction, obviously for different reasons, and Mookie Betts, both of them are traded. But at the end of the day, when you're trading the best player in the team, like Odell Beckham Jr. and Mookie Betts, that's a hard decision. I think it comes from ownership there when you're trading a guy like that. Then you look at some other situations. Not trading Xander Bogots or J.D. Martinez at the trade deadline last year and letting them walk in free agency, that's a tough situation. This year, not selling some pieces of the deadline. People are going to criticize him for. But I still believe in that team at the deadline, so I'm fine not selling at the deadline. I'm fine keeping Justin Turner. I'm fine keeping James Paxton. I'm fine keeping Adam Duvall. Duvall is a guy that I want, wanted traded. And at the end of the day, in July, I wanted him gone. In August, he really stepped up. He looked like the Adam Duvall of old, like he did in the beginning of the season at one point, really towards the end of August. But he heated up. And so I give Bloom some credit. He was working with a smaller payroll, you know, the Red Sox fans are typically, you know, used to seeing. And it's not on him. That's on ownership for saying, hey, lower the payroll. That's on John Henry. And I think the Red Sox saw them losing, obviously, games now over the last couple weeks. They saw them out of the playoff race, and they saw record low attendance levels, and they saw the last two years missing the playoffs, and they said, okay, high Bloom's got to go. But he's leaving the next general manager with a farm system that's fifth in one ranking and 15th in another which is better than the Red Sox were when he first started four years ago. So a better farm system, which Jeff Passon of ESPN said it's Orioles-like with the position players they have coming up, Marcelo Meyer and Nick York, and then Sadat Rafael has looked very good for the Red Sox now since being called up, and obviously a lower payroll. So he's not going to take, the next guy that comes in isn't going to take the heat for having a lower payroll. Bloom, I think he was a fall guy for this Red Sox team. I think he was a scapegoat for this team in ownership saying lower the payroll. Bloom is just doing his job. That's what he's great at doing at, you know, doing in Tampa Bay, lowering the payroll and finding guys under the radar, building a farm system. That's what he was great at doing in Tampa Bay. He was a fall guy for this Red Sox team, and that's why I feel bad for him. He did miss some things, and I'm not saying Bloom is perfect. No general manager in sports is perfect. You're going to have hits, you're going to have misses. That's the beauty of being a general manager. You're never going to get everything right. But it's about taking risks and taking shots. Bloom took a shot with Trevor Story. He took some shots at smaller budgets, you know, smaller contracts in the offseason this year, and a lot of them worked. Yoshida, Turner, Duvall, Martin, Jensen. He hit on all those guys in the offseason. Paxton, he hit on all those guys in the offseason. So what are your final thoughts on the High and Bloom situation before I let you go? Well, I'm sure he's going to get picked up and have a job probably by the, uh, you know, the World Series this year. Um, I, I'm going to miss him. I thought he did a great job. I agree with you 100%. He's the fall guy that you know, everyone can point fingers at. But he really did a great job, especially this year. He did his job for ownership. And we've cited many times tonight the talent he brought in. Um, I, I like the building blocks. I think the new GM, I agree with you again. He's going to have um, some nice pieces in place. And I think the biggest need will be starting pitching and maybe even um, middle relief. That seems to be a weakness as well. And I'm hoping Bloom ends up with the winning organization. I'm sure he'll work wonders with somebody. Everyone always gave him credit for how smart he was and how great of a baseball mind he is. He's going to find another job rather soon, obviously, like you said. A great baseball mind. I wish him nothing but the best. And like you said, he did a lot of good things here. But he also missed some things, too. I don't blame him for Mookie Betts. He should have gotten a better return at the end of the day. But when you're trading David Price in that deal, you're lowering your return because you're dumping money to another team. Right. That, that was it. That was it. That was a major part of that deal was dumping Price's, the rest of his $217 million contract. Um that was a lot of money, obviously, left in that deal. And the Red Sox found a way to dump it to the Dodgers. But one thing I wanted to mention, he could have given Zinna Bogats a monster deal in the offseason. And Bogats ends up getting 11 years, $280 million. And at the time, I said, that's a lot of money for Zinna Bogats. I wouldn't have given him that. Now, how does that look Bloom, now? High and Bloom, like Jeff Passan noted in a podcast I was just listening to, High and Bloom ends up making the right decision there. And nobody really talks about that. And like Jeff Passan noted, the Red Sox do have a good farm system now that High and Bloom really built. 
So credit to Hyam Bloom. I wish him nothing but the best. I think he was the fall guy in the scapegoat for this Red Sox team. Seems like a very good guy. I think he'll find a job elsewhere. I think he will succeed in a smaller market where he's not going to have the pressure on him like he did here being a Boston Red Sox chief baseball officer. So much pressure on you being that here, and nobody's ever going to agree with you, it seems like, especially on the radio. No one's ever going to agree with the moves you make because if the Red Sox are losing games, it's always on either the manager or the general manager most of the time in sports. And it seemed like for this Red Sox team, it was always on Bloom. It wasn't on the players. He put some good players out there, and there were guys that weren't really doing great, especially at key points of the season. The Red Sox needed some big wins at some points of the season, and they, they got swept or lost two of three against the Cardinals, or they got swept against the Cardinals at one point in the season when Jansen blew two games. They lost to the A's twice at a key point in the season. They got swept by the Pirates, like you noted before. It's like there were a lot of key points in the season where the Red Sox were set up to make a run in the AL, you know, pennant race there, trying to make a run in the wild card. And the players just fell short. It's on everybody, though. It's on everyone. Bloom could take some of the blame. Obviously, he's going to take the majority of the blame, which has been the case now the last couple seasons. But Cora's to blame for some decision-making. And then the same goes in the players. And I think the same's on ownership. I think ownership's the big issue here. I think Hyam Bloom was the fall guy for them. No question about it. And I'm sure he's going to succeed at his next job, and I wish him all the best. And you've always been a big fan of him. You have always were saying, you know, he knew what he was doing, and especially that 2021 ALCS run. Nobody gave the Red Sox a chance that year, and he got a lot of big acquisitions that stepped up in that run. Kike Hernandez didn't do much in the regular season, but he was great in the postseason then. Ronda Renfro was a big piece on that team that year. So we'll see what happens with High Bloom in the future, but I know one thing. Me and you are going to be rooting for him no matter where he ends up. Absolutely. I'm rooting for him. Can't wait to see where he lands. Anyways, Paul, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. And thank you, Paul, for taking the time to come on. Always a pleasure talking sports with you. And I can't wait to have you on another time soon. Always a pleasure, Joe. Thanks. Take it easy. Have a good one. Stay safe, guys, with the hurricane coming into Boston. Hopefully everybody has a great weekend. As I said, stay safe, be well, and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.